Welcome to Election R&D from the University of Southern California's Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and we respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Welcome. I'm glad you can join us for this week's Darn Safe Dialogues. Um, I hope everyone's been enjoying the series as much as I have. Um, it's been another really difficult week. Um, and before I start into things today, I just want to say to our entire Dornsife extended Dornsife community that we are all here to support you in any way that we can. Um, today's discussion will touch on several of the most complex issues of the moment, um, from COVID to politics to the protests happening around the nation. And all of these issues have found a real-time battleground for communication and debate on social media. It is now at the core of debates about misinformation and First Amendment rights, with some platforms adding warnings or removing messages that provoke violence or conflict with the facts. Um, and all of this will undoubtedly affect the November election and the national dynamic that leads up to the election. Um, so to talk about that with you today, we have a terrific panel of experts from across the USC community who's going to help us unpack some of the ways that we expect this might play out. Our moderators are backed by popular demand. Bob and Mike Murphy are co-directors of the USC Dornsife Center for the Political Future. I headlined the very first of our online Dornsife dialogues, and it is always terrific to have them here with us. Bob Strom is the Warshaw Professor of Practical Politics and an accomplished Democratic political strategist. He spent decades advising some of the biggest names in the Democratic Party, including uh, several presidential candidates. Along the way, he's been duking it out with an influential political strategist on the other side of the aisle, Mike Murphy. Um, and Mike has been steering Republican campaigns at every level, including the very highest level. Together, they have been leading some of the most important and spirited conversations out there on American politics and the ripple effect that it's making on our divided nation. So without further ado, I'm going to turn our panel over to these two experts to introduce our panelists. Bob and Mike, it's all yours. Let me introduce the panelists. Uh, Jean-Patrick Allum is Assistant Professor of Research Preventive Medicine at the Keck School of Medicine at USC. He's Director of the Social Media Analytics Lab at Keck. Uh, his research ranges from subjects like mass media campaigns in the U.S. and Latin America to public interest in climate change in the U.S. and ranges far beyond that. Christina Lerman is the principal scientist at the Information Sciences Institute at the USC Viterbi School of Engineering, research associate professor at Viterbi in the computer science department, and her research focuses on deciphering the structure and dynamics of the social web including social media and on, online sites like uh, Twitter, Dig and Flickr. Her empirical and experimental studies identified the importance of cognitive biases in understanding individual and collective behavior online. With that said, I'm going to turn you over to the brilliant and legendary Mike Murphy, my co-director, adversary. We've been adversaries in campaigns, but we've always been friends, and now we're working together to advance a kind of dialogue where we respect each other and respect the truth. Mike? Thank you for the great and completely undeserved uh, introduction. You're too generous, and I appreciate it, old friend. It is great to come together. Thank you all for joining us. We have some real experts in the incredibly important and powerful topic of the effect of social media. 
on every dimension, be it political or in the current pandemic, et cetera. So I'm going to do some questioning here. Bob will have a couple of questions. He's been having trouble with his AOL dial-up. He's probably going to chime in on that. <laughs> um, and th then we're going to go to you. So uh, through the moderator, uh, we're going to have some questions from our Zoom audience. So Professor Lehrman, I'd like to start with you. Can you give us a little description of your latest research on perception bias? Because I find on social media, it's easier for me to find people I already agree with, and that's a comfortable place to go. I mean, how, how is it affecting the reality of social media, information sharing in the pandemic, politics, et cetera? We'll start with your research, and then we'll go over to Professor Allen, too. Great. Thank you for those questions. And I'm very happy to be here to share some of the results. So yes, as um, Mike said, I study the role of social networks, especially in online social media, shaping perceptions and our opinions of friends. Why is this important? Because people do try to conform to the opinions of the friends. But the, what my research shows that actually in social media, an active minority can distort perceptions in the network. And why? It's because people don't actually can see what everybody on Twitter is saying. Uh, they only see some subset of their of the network. So, for example, if if here if the blue and the yellow represent opinions that people are talking about on Twitter, people don't see what everybody else is saying. They just see what their friends are saying. So, th this particular person I have highlighted in yellow, he sees their friends, um, and uh, so it happens to be that friends actually don't represent the entire network. It's a special subset of the network. And because of who is active and when are they active, and minority opinion can appear to be a majority to almost all of the people. And even in the simple example of this network that I'm showing online, if you go to the next slide, you can say, actually see, even though a view of each person, each person's kind of opinion they're holding, I'm representing exactly by the color, is like yellow. If they look at opinions that their friends are expressing, they're going to see that a majority of the of the friends of each person within this network, actually, the majority of the friends hold the blue opinion. Why? Because this blue people who hold the blue opinion, even though they're in a minority, they happen to be very active and they happen to be connected to many different people. So you can get this. Uh, you can quickly get in the situation where some so opinion that is in the minority kind of tyrannizes the majority of the effect. So this is kind of a little illustration I'll show, but does it actually happen in real life on Twitter? And yes, it does. Next slide. We did a, an empirical study where we, well, basically collected discussions on Twitter back in 2014. In the summer of 2014, what was happening in the summer of 2013, around August? This is actually happens to be right around the time when we were collecting the data. Same thing that's happening right now, police shootings of unarmed black men. So. Ferguson, you'll see Ferguson, Mike Brown are, you know, widely discussed topics back then on Twitter. And we simply measured, actually, how many people are talking about each of these specific topics, hashtags on Twitter. And then we, uh, for each person, we measured what fraction of their friends are talking about this uh, session. So global prevalence is how many people on entire Twitter are talking about the topic. This is the popularity of the topic, the trending uh, topic. And local per perception is basically what fraction of the friends of each person are talking about the topic. And you can see for some of these topics, network structure can dramatically distort perceptions, making the locally the topic to be far more popular. This is the orange bars you see in the plot. Locally, it's far more popular than it is globally. So again, the blue bars are what how many people are talking in general about the topic. 
and orange is the fraction of friends of each user in our status that we know about. So there can be a huge discrepancy between this local, how people, how popular people consider the topic to be and how popular it is actually on Twitter. Okay, go to the next slide. This is, a fact, is still happening on Twitter, I'm sure, even now when we're discussing COVID, discussing politics. We are, right now, we are studying actually uh, anti-science and conspiracy views, how they've been promoted and propagated on Twitter versus pro-science views, uh, pro-science users. And we are actually seeing uh, that even though anti-science uh, views or anti-science accounts, sources that promote anti-science and conspiracy views represent as a small minority of the accounts, they can still distort the perceptions of a much larger fraction of people just by the virtue of being how active and how connected they are. And we're also studying how platforms themselves may inadvertently promote the, their engagement, uh, their, these accounts by focusing by, uh, by the ranking, by how they, they promote those accounts within the news feeds of the individual users. So we're actually right now studying the, uh, the bias that has been introduced by Twitter algorithm, for example, by virtue of how they display, how they highlight specific content to people. And, uh, you know, we are going also exploring the implications this has for, for things like political polarizations. Thus, having this network structure that promotes this majority illusion or the tyranny of min minority, does it help drive the and, uh, and division and polarization of the com uh, conversation? And it will be especially interesting going forward in the future, seeing how this is going to uh, shape the debate that we are having about vaccines, for example, once COVID vaccine is discovered, will people take it? And will the vocal and active anti-vaccine community be able to exert their influence over the much larger uh, numbers of people who are, are you know, maybe they're more uh, malleable, their opinions are more malleable. So this is kind of, the, this is, uh, my research highlights the importance of the network structure, how the networks are formed over time in being able to share what opinions, what information people are being exposed to and what opinions they will adopt. Thank you. Oh, no, it's incredibly interesting. In politics, we see a phenomenon we call the virtual precinct which in the old days, geography often in workplace mm -hmm. relationships, you'd be over the back fence with a neighbor who may not agree with you because you're grouped together by geography rather than choice necessarily, though choice is part of you know where you land geographically. But now people choose their own virtual neighbors in these clusters mm -hmm. that, as you say, have similar opinion and it becomes self-reinforcing. And that, that has really changed the nature of how people get political information. And I, I thought that information was very interesting and maybe we'll talk about it some more. Dr. Allen, I have been leaning into social media during this pandemic crisis. I, I've been sipping away dutifully uh, on my hydrochloroquine Clorox cocktail here because I've, I've read on Twitter it's a miracle elixir. What are you seeing as somebody at the intersection of social media and medicine in the public you know, health crisis where credible information is a huge and important you know, tool is net net social media helping drive behavior or is it hurting and is there an evolution to it or is, is it getting better or getting worse as we slog through this awful pandemic well um i just want to say thank you for having me and and i think professor lerman's research is more timely than ever demonstrating how people are siloing off especially with respect to science and anti-science and and the, the goal moving forward is to get people to communicate with one another and, um, you know, that really brings um, to the, the point we raised about 
about is social media helping uh, net net or or harming the public in with respect to uh, information acquisition and then how information exposure translates to offline behavior or offline behavior change in early April uh, I wrote a kind of a lay commentary uh, published by the conversation documenting um, a little bit about what I've seen trending for lack of a better word on social media specifically Twitter with respect to uh, COVID-19 and you're right a number of the posts out there could be labeled as misinformation or an unsubstantiated health claim. But it isn't only misinformation that uh, that is the problem. It's individuals' ability to propagate that information or on platforms like Twitter, we're talking about retweeting. And, And what we're seeing is that individuals aren't stopping to think about the veracity of the claims, or maybe they don't have the ability to evaluate the claims being made and aren't checking exactly kind of if this information or this post is coming from an authoritative uh, source like the CDC or the World Health Organization. Um, so it's hard to make a general conclusion about if social media is not, is net net um, positive or negative on behavior change during this pandemic. But a bright note is that there are some um, health officials and experts um, including members from the Keck uh, School of Medicine, uh, faculty members there who are using social media very effectively in hopes to reach the public and um, help them get through this period of time. Is it a problem that there are a lot of people out there who don't believe, for example, that the CDC is an authoritative source? They may believe it's an instrument of the deep state. In my data, I'm not seeing any evidence of that. However, I mean, I'm sure you could find evidence of that in certain corners of the web or maybe in, in certain corners of offline conversations. So it might not necessarily be that they just, that, that a growing number of people distrust these institutions, but might not be familiar with, you know, the institutions themselves. You know, we're talking about health literacy, internet literacy, information kind of acquisition, and how that affects different priority populations. And then also how effective is that communication being relayed to the public? And we have to keep in mind that science evolves. The methods kind of stay the same, but the acquisition of information is updated, and the average person sometimes isn't really comfortable with that. And they might interpret a change in recommendation or uh, as a function of new information as people being wrong to begin with. And so we really want to do a good job at translating the work and, and being cautious with our recommendations and communicating about how things may change as information um, becomes available. A question, doctor, for either of you. Do you think this is amplified by cultural factors? I mean, we've seen in almost everything since the disillusionment, you can figure out where the starting line is, Watergate, Vietnam, that everybody's so postmodern now. You know, everything is deconstructed where no institution is legitimate. There's total cynicism. Oh, they're really, everybody has a secondary agenda. Does that just kind of destroy the faith people have in anybody having objective truth, you know, in on these Twitter feeds, like the CDC? I, I know what you said about your data to Bob's question, but just this suspicion and cynicism about institutions. Do you think that's a growing trend in society? Is social media making it worse, or is it just natural human nature? 
you know, just be incredibly suspicious. Definitely. I agree with John Patrick. Um, that, and, you know, your point that you know, I do think that cultural war, wars have eroded the trust that people have in uh, institutions and the cultural wars right now, there's different factors that are driving the separation, the stratification of society along cultures used to be, maybe it was race and race and the class now it's education you know so far uh, that's separating people and how much trust they put in different you know pillars of society traditional pillars of society whether it's a bad thing or whether it is growing uh, it's a question that will be left up to future researchers but i'm like to point out i remember you know i'm an immigrant in this country i came many many years ago but i remember coming to this country people said oh there's no difference between republicans and democrats and people <laughs> were faulting us for that now it's clearly there's much bigger difference between the Republicans and the Democrats, and maybe it's a good thing. You know, maybe it's good to highlight those differences so we can make a choice about what our future should be, who our future should be shaped by. Dr. Allen, any comment on any of this? I don't know if social media is creating a, a larger wedge um, based on, on, on kind of the, the ideas that you brought up, but it has allowed more people to have a microphone. And individuals can self-select into conversations, and then these these social media platforms can aggregate those voices. And in that way, you can say that the reach could be greater. Um, I don't know if offline, if, if people are fundamentally more divided than ever before. I mean, some survey research uh, would suggest it is, but depending on how you kind of look at that, instead of um, a division um, kind of in a U-shape, you kind of could see this bell-shaped distribution where people are uh, oftentimes in agreement on the majority of things. However, on some issues, they're not. So you get this kind of more of a purple than a red versus blue. But um, I definitely think that social media is aggregating voices. Yeah, it's interesting. And I'd be curious what Bob thinks. In politics, what we have noticed is in the old model, even with television and mass media, which revolutionized it, generally to get a platform, you needed to succeed on an elite strata. You needed to raise a lot of money from interest groups that were not run by idiots. They're ideologically different, but you get in a room with 100 CEOs, you're not dealing with idiots, auditioning to get campaign money, to get platform, to then be amplified. And same thing on the left with labor or other elite donor groups. Or you had to be elected to a senior position in politics, be a governor, somebody to have an argument, which would then be amplified for free by the media. With social media, that's all gone. You don't need an elite approval to be earned, to raise a lot of money, Bernie Sanders, or to take your fame from television or wherever and communicate to zillions of people around structures and take over a political party like Donald Trump did in 2016. So in the practical politics world Bob and I operate on, social media has been a huge amplifier. It, I guess you can say if you're a fan of it, it has small d democratized the kind of party nomination and political process. But you get anybody saying anything to a lot of people for free, which is changing our politics. Yeah, we, you know, there's uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan's line about everybody's entitled to their own opinions, but not their own facts. Now anybody can get whatever facts they want. They can find on social media a website that's going to agree with and reinforce what they believe. The old political kind of gateways are gone in the 60s and into the 70s. You would have had three major newspapers, three networks, and if they didn't think it was important, somehow or other you, you didn't get talked about or your view didn't get talked about. So if somebody in, say, 1962 had gone to Walter Cronkite, 
who was then the big deal at CBS and the big deal in television news and said, Mr. Cronkite, the John Birch Society is holding a press conference today to say that President Eisenhower, and first of all, Cronkite would have said, who are they? But to, to say that President Eisenhower was an unwitting agent of the communist conspiracy and President Kennedy is a socialist, how many camera crews should we send? And Cronkite would have looked up and said, you're fired. Well, today, anybody has access to a platform that allows them to talk to everybody or pretty close to everybody and certainly to the people they agree with. That's the downside, at least in my view. The upside, by the way, is what Mike mentioned. It's democratized fundraising. You can raise an enormous amount of money on the Internet. In fact, people are welcome to make donations to the Center for the Political Future. <laughs> um, we, we, we do a lot of this stuff. We need it. So, uh, professors, getting back to this, I'd be curious on a, on a practical application here. We've had little news about Twitter last week. Uh, President Trump issued an executive order aimed at the existing laws that protect social media companies from being held liable for content on their platforms. Now, it was a bit of kabuki theater because, as you all know, Congress has to do the law changing. But it was his way to post up against Twitter, and his argument was the protection given social media companies by that liability law allows them to freely censor thoughtful voices from the right, including, though he didn't say that, his, because his Twitter posts, which are his favorite, as we all know, method of directly communicating to his supporters going around the media, although then the media covers the Twitter feed. So it's kind of a funhouse mirror situation. But regardless, he was in a spec because Twitter started putting fact checking on some of his tweets, which were, of course, factually challenged, I think an objective observer would say. So will this have a chilling effect on the First Amendment? Should there be liability for these companies to have a little bit of a policing power on social media? I'm curious to what your your reaction is, because right now it's a very kind of libertarian world. They're like a utility. They amplify. They would argue many of the CEOs, I know Facebook, Zuckerberg has made the argument, were kind of the bulletin board in the public square. We're not an editorial organization. But then there are abuses. Some people on the left would argue, hell, even me as a anti-Trump conservative would argue it's been abused by President Trump. What, what's your take on this kerfuffle with uh, Facebook, Trump, and the whole idea of more censorship of these social media platforms, or at least more liability? There's a number of questions there. Do I think Congress is going to act and, um, and or cooperate? And my answer is no. I don't see a scenario where Congress passes legislation here. Uh, the Democrats and Republicans are rather divided on this kind of broader issue, where the Democrats don't think Twitter is doing enough to potentially fact check certain accounts and the Republicans believe uh, that they're being silenced, um, where maybe where there's consensus is that, um, you know, social media companies like Twitter and Facebook have become very large and ingrained into civic society and something may or may not need to be done there. Now, when we think about what the implications of all this are in the future of free speech, I mean, the First Amendment, which guarantees freedom of speech, applies to the government. If Twitter denied a platform to Trump or if it allowed only Republicans or only Democrats to have access to its platform, it wouldn't necessarily be violating the Constitution. So we kind of have to remember that the First Amendment prohibits government officials from using government power to retaliate against an individual or entity for engaging in protected speech. Yeah, no, look, I agree. I think it's impractical, though it is it is an interesting argument they ought to have some editorial responsibility. I'm not sure I buy it because I kind of accept what they are. But I think there is public support for the idea 
of, I don't know, more control on it, which I think, again, I'm a First Amendment freak, so I'm not persuaded. But you see that coming up in polling and all that. Uh, Professor Lehrman, what, what do you think? Yeah, I'd like to add to two, two things, because also Twitter's and Facebook's role has become prominently discussed. So the tech platforms, moreover, they're not just bulletin boards, as you said. You know, they're bulletin boards coupled with carnival barkers that take people by hand and lead them to the most divisive, the most you know outrageous content they can find. Why? Because they're it's their bottom line. They're public companies. The bottom line depends on this. You know, the more eyeballs they have, and what invites more eyeballs, it's outrage. You know, so they are actually they're not just bulletin boards. They're actually actively promoting outrage and helping it form because it's better for their bottom line. So tech companies do have responsibilities to their consumers. And now we're actually waking up to that and Twitter and Facebook are waking up to that and we'll see some, some progress in that. And second point I'd like to say that, you know, yes, you know, I know that conservatives frequently accuse media and social media of bias. I'd like to highlight that, uh, point out that measuring bias is really, really, really hard, hard. And actually, that's what the other half of my work deals with. Uh, half of my work deals with network science, another one deals with measuring bias. For example, there was a study recently that showed, you know, looked at uh, YouTube moderation. And, you know, the claim was that it was biased against conservatives because many more conservative comments on YouTube videos were being moderated out of existence. But then actually it turns out there was a hidden confounder in this data. It happened to be that conservative posts were actually using bad language, let's say. And that was the reason why being moderated. And because there was a correlation, because more conservatives were using bad language, that's why more of their posts were uh, being uh, moderated. So is, the, is there bias against conservatives or is there something else confounding it? So, you know, once we start operationalizing and trying to measure bias, we have to be, you know, uh, aware of all these difficulties of measuring bias. Yeah, I have found in politics, I'm sure Bob has too, that uh, anytime one candidate attacks another, everybody screams bias. The candidate being receiving the attack, their supporters say that candidate has been smeared. Where's the outrage from the media? You know, why don't, why don't they stop this throw? And then the reverse on the other side, the attacking candidate, why aren't they rewarded for finally telling the truth about, you know, X, Y, or Z? So people do tend to root. I think your, your data on how clusters of people reinforce each other is very applicable to this, not only on the receiving end, but like I'm often, you know, I'm a conservative Republican. I ran campaigns for a long time. People are always tell me about media bias. I deal with a lot of reporters like, like Bob has in his career. I don't find willing bias in reporters, but they are in a cultural world where 80% of their peers in their private lives are more left of center than right of center. So, you know, you, you get into that kind of echo chamber bias, not unlike social media. But as you say, it's very hard to measure. So here here's a question that I'm obsessed with. There's a study out, let's say, I think, yeah, Carnegie Mellon has a, a study out reporting that nearly half the accounts that are sharing and retweeting messages about COVID-19 are, in fact, bots, not real. And on social media, you never know who's a bot. Explain the bot thing a little bit. And is it all pejorative? Is some of it commercial, people just trying to amplify their voices? Is it all sinister? But it stuns me that half, only 50% of the sites that are repeating information be it good or bad, true or misinformation, are in fact not people, they're machines. Who, who creates them and why? I looked at that study and, and while I think it would be first important to point out that let's define bots. So we have these kind of 
automated accounts that are backed by artificial intelligence designed to perpetuate certain ideas and engage with other social media accounts in a way that is where they attempt to be indistinguishable from humans. Now, the methods in which people employ to detect bots aren't perfect. And so that 50% number is an inference that has a margin of error around it. I'm, I'm not saying it's wrong, but I'm just saying on average, there's going to be some error there. So when we think about what these count, uh, accounts are doing, and uh, let's, I mean, step back and say that they're looking to sow discord. I mean, that's, the, that's kind of the takeaway point that I, that I read from this study. And, and you know, we, we're dealing with a pandemic um, all over and in, in the U.S. in particular, certain measures have been in place. And in order to sow discord, you can push back on the severity. Uh, social bots have been pushing back on the severity of the pandemic, pushing back at the appropriateness of social distancing or the necessary, um, its necessity. And, and other types of government and pushing back on other types of government actions at the state or, or local level or at the federal level. And that was my takeaway point. But as a, someone in the audience here, when they're browsing their feeds, um, they need to be extra vigilant and make sure not to propagate posts that are questionable and, and really take a close look at the accounts and the content of information before retweeting or engaging with the content. And again, like I mentioned earlier, you want to seek out authoritative accounts for information, the questions you may have. My colleague, Emily Ferraro, my collaborator, you know, Ferraro, writes frequently about this topic of bots, so I feel like I know quite a bit about social bots. So social bots are just automated computer programs. For the most part, you know, vast majority of social bots you're going to see there, they're used for spam. They're, they piggyback on trending topics to promote some other unrelated services for sale or something like that. So it happens that COVID has been a trending topic for several months now on Twitter. So you do find many, so he did find, actually he had the paper in the first Monday uh, recently, that many of these bots actually piggybacking on this uh, transient topics to disseminate pure spam, not for any kind of you know, malicious reason. But having said that, you know, social manipulation does exist and is very prevalent social media. It's fairly easy to do, just like it's fairly easy to enter a political discourse and contribute. Social media has also, you know, lowered the bar for manipulation. So I wouldn't worry so much about bots, but I would worry about even foreign nationals trying to distort the discourse around different topics. Whose interest is the discussion in it? So definitely back with John Patrick said, you have to be extra, extra, super extra vigilant, knowing, you know, who, who this the source of information, what is their purpose in, in, in promoting this information? So what impact do you think disinformation is likely to have in the 2020 presidential and, for that matter, Senate and, and uh, congressional campaigns? Are we, how long is this panel supposed to be? I think <laughs> we'll need many hours to talk. I think it's you. Now that we've shown, you know, I mean, there's still some controversy uh, whether or not Soviet Russia manipulated 2016 election. As somebody who was born in the Soviet Union, I, there's no doubt in my mind they have attempted it. Why? Because it is just so, so easy. And so, and I don't think it's just the Russians. I think it's going to be every single adversary that they have to show us to, you know, the, our hypocrisy, to highlight our division, to highlight our dysfunction they're going to be promoting. And actually, I've been, I've been on a single one-woman crusade to expose Russian trolls on social media. So I'll bait them by typing in Russian words and seeing how they respond to them. To that. So, 
I've outed one account like that. You know, we'll see if how many more. But yes, I think actually we should be really on the lookout for people who are trying to use this information, trying to use uh, social media to manipulate us. Well, one salute. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and, you know, there are some people who say it didn't happen, but the consensus, as you know, among our intelligence services, and in fact, almost every retired intelligence officer I know was it absolutely happened and it's been proven pretty conclusively. And of course, I mean, it goes back to the common turn, set the world ablaze. I mean, this is this was a tactic of the old Russia for, as you well know, we have other state actors. There's no doubt it's happening. What one just here's kind of a layman's idiot question from my you know, IQ 80 point of view on this stuff. Are there bot tells? Dumb bots are easy to see retreat, you know, USA number one, aliens control the Democrats. But clever bots, you know, bot farms with human content writers, highly amplified. Are there any tells to it? When you see a repeated tweet, you know, is somebody who's an expert on this, either one of you, is there anything that's kind of a, a crafty bot tell in the syntax or anything? Or Yeah, I've been doing a lot of field work by, you know, hanging out on Twitter and reading, following every single link and looking at profiles of things right. you know, that occupies a lot of my time. So, like, you, you look at the accounts, if they have very few followers, if they were recently created, those are telltale signs. Right now, you know, if I were a Russian troll trying to masquerade as an American, I would probably be claiming to be a Christian, devout father or mother, you know, trying to stress the values that, you know, certain segments okay. of the population like hold you dear, either that or I'd claim to be a black activist, for example. So anybody with extreme, you promote extreme views like this through their, in their profile, and you can see the profile just by hovering your mouse over a username, you should take whatever they're trying to say, say with a grain of salt. Uh, and especially okay. if they're not connected to anybody you know. Twitter also highlights, if you hover your mouse over the username, it will say that, you know, followed by people in your network. If, if it's completely unrelated individual, ignore them. Just don't, don't even engage. Okay, good advice. Let's go to some questions from our uh, our audience out there. The first one is from Kim Worsencroft. It is very possible that many of us are, quote, self-selecting when it comes to our news sources. We tend to seek out ideas and people that we agree with, like choosing Fox News or CNN for news. How can we possibly change that, is Kim's question. Any thoughts, anybody? That's exactly what we are actually trying to study right now, to, trying to show that this diversifying the sources will actually reduce this effect, of course. you know. And, and so how should you do it? You should do it deliberately. And actually, Twitter should deliberately also try to, to help with people. But for example, I subscribe to Wall Street Journal. Uh, I don't watch TV, so I don't watch CNN or uh, Fox News, but I do try to subscribe, you know, the New York Times as well as Wall Street Journal to see diverse uh, opinions. Uh, and I would encourage everybody else to challenge themselves, to try to see, uh, follow something that's labeled the opposite side. Here's an interesting question from Arnold. And Arnold, I apologize. I'm going to mangle your name. La Nui, I believe. If social media is not, all caps, Arnold is, is wants to stress that, if social media is not a true reflection of society, and institutions use social metrics to fuel their predictive algorithms, are we headed down a path where those algorithms misdirect public resources? In other words, can it hack the system for where public resources go by creating the impression and perception, which in politics is, is powerful, of, of needs that may not be there? Very interesting question. Yeah, that's a very interesting question. I would say that, well, we don't know exactly what specific institutions is being referred to here, but 
In general, social media data is being used to complement traditional data that's been tried and true and sometimes gold standard. So in a lot of ways, it's simply used to augment the initial data that we collect and have been collecting on economic issues or on social issues or on health issues, et cetera. And in that way, I feel like it can only be helpful because I don't see any instances where social media is uh, superseding uh, the traditional tried and true uh, data that we've been collecting. So that, that's kind of how I see it in that way. I'm going to offer a more pessimistic point of view because, yes, right now the, in artificial intelligence research, for example, there's a lot of interest right now in adversarial attacks. You know, how many images, false images, do we have to introduce until your vision recognition algorithm makes a mistake? So I am worried that it might be possible with social media to create data that is entirely misleading misleads the algorithm to make wrong recommendations. But, you know, we, if, if I believe for every technological problem, there's also a technological solution. So hopefully we'll develop solutions to adversarial attacks like that. Social attacks. Yeah, I worry about that too. When deep fakes video mm-hmm. that is manufactured like a Jurassic Park dinosaur to look very real, but is in fact very created, it's hard to hack the neural reality of our minds Because right now, if I saw a big fake dinosaur running at me, my brain would say fake, my feet would say run. You know, I'm programmed to have certain reactions. It's hard to put images back in. We all remember uh, Mike Dukakis and the tank helmet. You know, we can argue, oh, was this a photo op? It didn't mean anything. But once an image is seared into your mind or a voter's mind, it's hard to put that toothpaste back in the tube. Now, we have a question from Kimberly Bliss. Kimberly wants to know, why does our democracy slash constitution allow politicians, slander and defamation, etc., but that same type of behavior is not permitted under the law for businesses. Isn't it critical for those in public office or campaigning to be held accountable under the threat of prosecution for their lives? Shouldn't the laws be changed to require truth, especially when science does exist, to correct them? Tricky question. Bob is unplugging his microphone. No, I I just, it's never going to happen. It shouldn't happen. You'd have to have government become an arbiter of what truth is, unless you established a a way for, say, candidates to sue each other. And we made a conscious decision that that's not the right way forward. And in fact, political ads from candidates, Mike, as you know, are protected even more than most speech. Networks and, and, and cable companies can't censor them. They have to put them on. So I, I, I don't think it'll happen. I don't think it should happen. And I certainly wouldn't want the government or the courts to be the arbiters of what truth is. I do believe in Jefferson's idea that all the voices ought to be heard and then we ought to make a decision as a society. I understand that's more difficult in the social media age, but I don't see any other way forward. Just to spark up the argument for a minute, and then maybe either doctor here has a point on this. Uh, I, I kind of agree with you, but I can argue that the Brits have a much looser libel protection law for their public figures than we do, and their democracy functions pretty well. One of the big differences is the loser pays in Britain. Right. If right. you sue somebody for slander and you don't win, you pay all the legal costs. So there's right. a tremendous deterrent to suing. But it does happen. You know, you see these big cases in the media. Anyway, that that is one reform, at least the loser pay part of it, that does appeal to me. Anybody else on this? All right, we're moving on. Let's see. Here's an anonymous question. Do you think that social media is fueling more anger between the two parties? Yes, I do. Do you find that it leads to more people arguing and less actual 
discussion, this is the tricky part, around the issues. Because generally it's always arguing around the issues. But um, anybody have a contrarian view on this? The question kind of has a premise. I do think that um, social media is leading to more arguments, more discussions, uh, argumentation. If we're, we're measuring, you know, there was a study came out recently that showed that the saddest day on Twitter was you know, a few days ago. Was a sad day. So there's a way to use Twitter to measure emotions that people are feeling, whether positive or negative. So definitely, you know, the, if we are measuring emotions as an outcome of healthy society, it has decreased recently. But then we've been hit by so many things recently that maybe that explains why it's trending down. But certainly all these things that are hitting us, COVID, you know, the, the racial inequality, it's also been amplified, discussed, argued, polarized in a polarized fashion on social media right now. So it's hard to say right now which is fueling this negative sentiment that we are having right now. Somebody tweeted out the other day, how many black swans can show up in one year? Referring to the, the uh, uh, what happened to Mr. Floyd in Minneapolis, referring to COVID, referring to the economic consequences, referring to the president's conduct. And my reaction to that was, maybe there aren't any white swans left. And I think in a sense, people might have been feeling that on that day when there was so much sadness on Twitter, because there's only so much you can take before you begin to say, are there any white swans left? <laughs> well, then, Bob, of course, the white swan is the black swan. Yeah. Uh, sorry, couldn't resist. Uh, back to our days of the Jesuits. So, uh, Dr. Alum, I think this is a great one for you if you're interested. From Robin Laird, what are some tips for the healthy use of social media? Any ideas, any suggestions to people? Um, using social media as a way to connect with friends and family and share interesting experiences and, and be able to just stay stay connected to people that maybe it's geographically difficult to, um, you know, a lot of us are quarantining right now and using platforms to kind of check in and, and, and to share where you, what you're doing and, and how you're dealing with things is it, it can be reinforcing and in, in a positive way. And I think, uh, I think that can be a very positive uh, way to, to use social media. And then also to kind of, you know, maybe entertain yourself a little bit there there. It's not always negative. Uh, you can, you know, with people quarantining and uh, we're at home and maybe we're using this time to follow a, a topic or, or a, a thread on Instagram or on YouTube that can just provide a little reprieve. And uh, it's, it's free content. Uh, you know, sometimes you get a few ads, but in that way, it could also be considered um, relaxing and, and, and in that way, health promoting. And social media doesn't mean Facebook and Twitter. Social media has those many different groups. Actually, there used to be many more communities online before Facebook and Twitter came in and basically destroyed them. I used to be active on Flickr many, many years ago because I found a photographer community that I, I liked. And there were communities for beer enthusiasts. There were communities for knitters, uh, different platforms. But then, you know, Facebook said that people said, oh, I'm getting Facebook accounts. So there was no need to have accounts. So basically, Facebook behemoth, you know, destroyed all other communities. But they're still out there. If you seek out communities of interest, even blog posts you like to follow, you can have a community in the discussion of the comments on the blog posts of things. You can actually find comfort in, on there, online. So definitely promote using social media for comfort seeking. We have a question here. Uh, it's interesting. Carter Dunlop is curious about any delta in the data, so to speak. Are there any studies showing that people who are skeptical of social media as a news source 
believe the traditional broadcast and print media is still reliable? You know, believers of one, believers of the other, or is there just none there? Everybody's skeptical of anything. Is there any meaningful group of people that are kind of still hanging on to traditional print media for credibility who don't like social media or not so much any data we know? From what I know, uh, from what Pew Research documents is, is that many people are getting their news from social media platforms, but they're from the same accounts that maybe some of them read online or in, for some of us, it was a while ago, got papers delivered to the house. Uh, so th- this idea, like social media is delivering the news through different accounts. And if it's the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or Bloomberg, you know, people are, are following these accounts and, 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 their sub, and their subdivision accounts to get their news. So I don't know if, if that's going to answer the question or not. I think it's just a different mechanism to, to get the similar content. Bloomberg posts on its website, and then its Twitter account posts the same article. Uh, if you believe in the, the website, I can't imagine you wouldn't believe in the same article that's on the Twitter account. But the question also, I would like to add to that, the question was uh, whether people should be skeptical or more skeptical of online versus print. But I would like to say that people should always be skeptical all the time, everywhere. Because all this question, you know, whose interest is it to promote this particular story? Who is benefiting from it? Who is suffering? And it's always good to be a critical consumer of information. I agree with that. All right. One from uh, Mark Donahue. What is your opinion about the, quote, limited steps we have seen recently such as Twitter's cautionary appendages to suspect tweets, which is a step toward the curating direction. Do we think it's a positive step? Should there be more? We touched on this a little earlier, but Mark uh, asked it, and I thought worth a moment. I kind of like the Twitter flagging myself. I think that's a good Mm -hmm. medium. It's a part of the first, I mean, First Amendment, when we're thinking about the First Amendment, you know, uh, having a knowledgeable public is important. And if they're only exposed to claims or mistruths or things that are highly uh, dubious, you know, they have a right to know that. And providing more context is what Twitter did. So providing more context to a post is not censorship. And so in that way, I I can only imagine that it is a positive thing. I mean, I guess that has inherent biases in, in that statement. But when you're providing the public with context, more information, and then I guess you can, like Professor Lerman says, be critical of that more information and be discerning about the greater context, I think that's all important too. But access to more information from reputable authoritative sources, I think is important. Um, Mm -hmm. And I I, I do think that's a good first step. Yeah, I fully agree with that. Yeah, I I think also, you know, disclosure, I've been a consultant in the past to Facebook, and there have been some discussions there. And uh, internally, there was some interest, I always argued for it, that promoted content where there's commerce behind it, ought to really have a red mark just for context. So people know this is something somebody is spending money to tell me. Just like when one of Bob's highly misleading political ads back in the old days, there would be a paid for by, you know, you you knew that maybe this wasn't Walter Cronkite writing the ad. It was Bob and a bunch of his Democrat cohorts in a room somewhere trying to win a campaign. So I, I frankly think context is the answer. So we're running out of time here. I'd love to give anybody a little time to wind up. Any final comments? Any anything you'd like to touch on that we didn't get to? I think we are going realizing that, that you know we are here. Social media is here to stay. Everything how it's used is here to stay. So what is our response? 
we need to be better educated as social media consumers. We need to be educated. And there's different ways. There's actually a program at UC Berkeley that Nobel Prize winning physicists started that had to be more critical consumers of information. We need those kinds of programs everywhere down in our schools so to raise a new generation of the, the, democracy, democracy. Well said. Dr. Allen? I was looking through the questions and people were raising issues about making distinctions between news and social media. And, you know, Twitter isn't a running a, they're not ne necessarily creating content in the same way that the New York Times would. So I think, I think some of the members of people in the audience should be, should be careful of that. Like if, if you're just looking at your feed, that isn't news, that's your feed. And like people, anyone can, who you're following is, is, is posting there, including ads, et cetera. So we want to make sure we, we, like, social media in general is delivering you information, not necessarily creating content. Like, people are creating the content and uploading it to that platform. Having said that, um, another comment I saw was about fact-checking. And I think uh, it is important to rely on fact-checkers, independent groups, nonprofit organizations that are looking to provide context uh, to specific claims. Um, one specific organization that was brought up is Snopes. I look at Snopes. I follow Snopes. I think they do a fairly reasonable job of taking a claim that is trending on Twitter or on some other platform or maybe not even online in general and providing you with context and then coming to a decision about whether or not that was true or false. And I think that would be something your audience would, would benefit from. Definitely. I just add one thing, Mike. We have been accelerating rapidly into a new world and our comprehension of its implications lags far behind. We are only at the edge of beginning to understand how this will transform our politics, our public policy, and the way we interact with each other as citizens. Well said. I can tell you this. One social media feed you can always trust, take it to the bank, is at USC Paul Future. That's us, the Center for the Political Future. We're on the web, too. We do a lot of programming like this virtually now during this COVID-19 crisis we're in. So we welcome you to join us. We hope you enjoyed today. I want to thank our panel, Professor Lehrman and Dr. Allen, my cohort and uh, old friend Bob Schrum and the staff at, uh, at the Center for the Political Future that props us up and makes these things happen. So thank you for tuning in. Keep in touch with our website, and uh, maybe we'll post some of the stuff we talked about today to give you a resource to look at it yourself. Thanks, everybody. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on Election R&D. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at USCPOLFuture, Facebook, and YouTube. And visit our website for upcoming programs. 